0: Well, we begin this series on gospel obedience as a rabbit trail, which darted off of a rabbit trail, which darted off of a an interim series of sermons that had to do with the use of the spiritual gifts in the church, which, Lord willing, the plan is to return to that original interim series next week. And I think... If you will, the next time that you see a rabbit in your yard try to chase it, I think you'll find that I've been true to the, the title of rabbit trails. This is just sort of what they do. Our concern began with righteousness. First, God's righteousness. An unwavering and awesome righteousness, which is in itself unflinching and terrible to the sinner. But then we move from God's righteousness to Christ's righteousness that is imputed to the believer through faith. Christ's righteousness is also unwavering, it's awesome, it's unflinching, even to the point of obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. And that righteousness is counted ours freely. Through faith, as if we had done all that He did, and as if we had not done all that we have done. It's credited to us through faith. And then from there, we took that trail to be, begin to consider our own righteousness, what we might call imparted righteousness, a righteousness that's worked in us by the grace of God and is lived out in our own lives. I've said repeatedly, standing immovably fixed in the order of salvation between those objective and legal aspects like justification, you're declared righteous, between that and the eternal aspects of the age to come, which for us begin at either death or the return of Christ. In between there, in what we call life, the Bible sets out for us the promise, expectation, and requirement of a living, breathing, flesh and blood righteousness with our name on it, or we will not enter heaven. Or to put it even more succinctly, as I've said, Christians live their lives according to God's law. And all throughout, I've tried to faithfully toe the line or or walk the tightrope of orthodoxy. On one side, there is the error of the legalist. On the other side, there's the error of the antinomian. The legalist says, Yes, we must obey God's law in order to be justified, either now or at the judgment. The antinomian says we've been set free by what Christ has done. There are no legal obligations upon us now. We simply live as we please. But in the middle there is the biblical order, the biblical prescription which says a Christian is justified through faith in Christ alone according to what he has done alone. And then from that point, the same grace that justifies is the same grace that empowers us to live according to the commandments of God. We have to avoid avoid both of these ditches. As I've said, as others have said before me, legalism and antinomianism make the same error. They both separate the law of God from the God of the law. We have to avoid these errors. Christians live their lives according to the law of God and they do so by faith. We always look to the God who justifies the ungodly through faith based on Christ's righteousness. And we look to God who empowers the godly to live by faith. This, this quote was sent to me this week, and if you can wrap your mind around this statement right here, I think it's, it's said well, Faith alone justifies. And the faith that justifies is never alone. But the faith that is never alone is not considered as obedient or faithful when it justifies. It is a mere looking out and taking hold of Christ. But that same faith will produce obedience. It will produce faithfulness. But God does not look down and say, I see your faith. And since I know that it will produce obedience in you and it will lead to faithfulness, therefore I will declare you righteousness based on your soon to begin and hopefully to be completed obedience and righteousness. That's not what happens. We're justified freely by His grace as a gift through faith. So the question has been repeatedly, how do we live? We live according to God's law. Okay, how do we do that? Well, we do it by faith. I said last Lord's or two Lord's days ago. What what we essentially do is, with one eye, we behold or we look at the law of God. What does He require? But with the other eye, we always keep keep that eye fixed on the completed work of Christ that is substituted in our place. We hold both of those. Our eyes fixed on both of those, and then we live. And I would suggest that whenever we uh, find ourselves in errors in Christian living, it's because we've taken one of our eyes off of one of those things. You take your eye off the law of God, that's going to lead either to legalism or antinomianism. You take your eye off the perfect righteousness of Christ, that's going to lead to legalism or perhaps even despair. We have to hold them both. Now in closing out this series, we're going to, again, return to Galatians 2 just sort of as a a reminder of the, the theme. And I want to try to bring every, all of this down to the most practical application that I can within reason. Uh, outside of being reasonable, I would suggest, every sermon that has ever been preached, every biblical sermon up until this point and after this point that you will hear is all application to this, this series. So the text says... And I'll read verses 19 and 20 again. Paul says, Through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So we've seen from this text the way that Paul describes himself and every Christian. This is the status that we find ourselves in when we're united to Christ by faith. Using the phrases, crucified with Christ, dead to the law. That's our status. We were crucified with Christ, therefore, we are dead to the penal sanctions, the punishments of the law of God. And we looked at Romans 8. If that's the case, then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not now, not forever. No condemnation. That's our status. And then from that, we have been considering the effects of that. What does that lead to? Broadly, in evangelicalism, in Christendom, if you ask people, what is the effect of being, we could just use the term that most of us know, saved? What what happens to somebody when they've been saved? Most people think, well, what that means is, I'm not going to hell I am going to heaven. That is a truth. But when you read the New Testament, the effects of salvation begin before we ever get to heaven. In this passage, the effects are a life lived to God. I've died to the law so that I might live to God. It produces a life lived as Christ lives in us by His Spirit. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Is it like I cease to exist? Well, no. His Spirit comes to dwell in me so that He becomes the living power. It leads to a life lived by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, it all in this passage leads to, in in Paul's mind, it leads to how I live today. There is hope for the future. But how do I live today? So we could say... The direct and immediate effect of our being brought into union with Christ with all of the objective and subjective benefits of Christ applied to us, the immediate and direct application or effect is that all of life becomes a life of faith. That's the effect. A person who has been brought into union with Christ, who's been justified by faith, from that point it leads to all of life being and or becoming a life of faith all of christianity is living by faith whenever we cease to live by faith in that moment we have ceased living the distinctly christian life every religion has a moral code every religion and 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 philosophy has some sort of uh, ceremonies or rituals, the things that they do that they say, well, now that I am in this faith or this religion, I, I wear this necklace. I wear this bracelet. I go to this place. I, I read this book. I, I pray to this deity or that deity. They all have that. Everybody has that. So we can't say, well, the distinctly Christian life is one who reads the Bible and goes to church and hangs out with certain people. It's not those things in, itself, in themselves that make a Christian. The Christian life is a life that's lived by faith in the Son of God. That's what makes it Christian. And any time, again, that we cease to live by faith, we have stopped living a distinctly Christian life. So that's how I want to sort of close the series is opening up several points under the heading if we wanted to summarize or, or give a title to the sermon. It would be The Life of Faith. And this is the more I thought about this, it's really a very meager or humble attempt at addressing this subject because it is so massive. It is the Christian life. I want to preach to you a sermon on the Christian life. Now, in approaching this subject, I had two options. Number one, I could walk through every circumstance of your life and my life and I could say, now when you get to this point and here are your options, here's how you act by faith. I could do that. Or I could make some attempt to address the root of the matter, which will then serve you in all of those circumstances. You probably guessed I've chosen the second one rather than the first one. And here's why. This is going to be my first shocking statement. This sermon is going to have, I know of at least two pretty shocking statements. But here's the first one. This is, again, this is why I've chosen to preach this sermon in this way. We can't know every circumstance of life. We don't know it. I don't know everything that's going to happen in your life. You don't know everything that's going to happen in my life. You don't, I don't know what's going to happen in my life. I don't know what my life holds for the rest of the day. I have zero idea. The next five minutes, as far as we are concerned, we don't know. So therefore, I can't address you in that way. The chief issue for us, is not a step-by-step manual addressing how to exercise every known or potential duty in life by faith. If that's what we needed, that's what God would have given us. He didn't give us that. He gave us ways to address the root of the matter. And when the root of the matter is addressed, then life is just lived. It, is the, it becomes the Christian life. We need to learn how to cultivate and strengthen the grace of faith itself. When faith is strong in the heart... We will act from that disposition increasingly in every area. So what do we do? We strengthen faith. When faith is strong, you'll live the life of faith. In in whatever the circumstance, whatever happens, you will live that life. So here are the, the three headings. First, the strengthening of faith. Then secondly, the exercising of faith on its proper object. And then thirdly, living life by faith. First then, the strengthening of our faith. This is the root of it all. Where faith is growing and where faith is strong, your life will be the one of faith. Are people going to write books about you? Probably not. But that doesn't mean it's not the life of faith. Faith does not grow in us in order to then lie dormant. It it, it is a grace, and it grows for use and by use. And so I believe that if we we just knew how to strengthen our faith, then we would live by faith. It, 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 It happens. It is an automatic. But first we have to ask, what does it mean to strengthen faith? What does that even mean? We know that Christ addressed weak faith or little faith. So I think we can assume from those that there is strong faith, there is big faith. I think it's safe to then deduce that our aim should be to move from weak little faith to strong big faith. I don't think when Christ said, oh, you of little faith, I don't think the disciples said, did you hear that? He said, we're of little faith. No, that, that, was, that was a rebuke. They were meant to be spurred on by that, to grow in their faith. So, so what does it mean to grow in faith? Remember that faith is a grace or a gracious habit. It's a disposition of the faculties of the soul. The illustration that I used was that in regeneration, the Holy Spirit comes into the soul and takes the faculties, the mind, the heart, the will, and it's sort of like furniture in a room, turns all of that furniture so that it faces out a big bay window and outside of that window is God. Everything we could possibly know everything that god has revealed about himself to us everything i'm just going to say outside of that window is god the spirit comes in and arranges the furniture in our soul to then look outward to god if it is god to which we are turned in the inner man by faith then the actings of the heart and the will will become shaped by constantly beholding god we live Out of what we're looking at, in other words. But remember, we still retain the corruption of our flesh. So think of it this way. It's like the furniture of our souls has been turned toward God. But this living room is big and expansive. And from the start, the furniture, though turned toward God, is actually really far away from the window. And so not only do we see the big bay window, outside of which there is all that we could know and possibly know about God, but we also take into our peripheral vision everything not God, the, the actings of the flesh. We also behold those things in our peripherals. So the strengthening of faith, here's the picture, the strengthening of faith is like moving the furniture closer and closer and closer to that window. So much so that in the process, not only are we getting closer to closer to God, learning more about God, learning, seeing more of the details of His glory and His majesty and His perfections, we see Him closer, but we also close off our vision to those peripheral objects. The, the closer you get to a thing, you, the less you see of other things. That's the picture. So that as faith is strengthened, more of God, less of all that is not God, becomes the, more and more the prevailing or predominant recourse of the mind and the heart in all of our actions. The eye of faith... Full of God, purely fixed on all of God, then propels all of the actings of the inner man. We're, we're, we're narrowing our vision so that we see only the things of God. We could say that. not just God and his attributes, but God in his attributes, his natures, his works, his revelation of himself, everything that we could possibly know. That, that clogs our eyes, so to speak, so that we can't see around him. He's all that we see. We live the life of faith, a life of utter dependence upon God. And increasing faith means dependence on God becomes more and more the immediate recourse of the soul. Let me illustrate this. I've used this before. If you've ever had a little car that shifts in the floor... And then as you, you get married, and you have kids, and eventually you move up to a SUV or a minivan, and usually those shift on the column. But for a while, back and forth, as you're learning, you, you jump in the minivan and you grab the floor. You know, you grab your, your cup in the cup holder or something. The shifter's not down there. You have to learn, oh, i got to reach up here now. And the more that you do that, eventually you never jump in the car and reach here, you reach here. It becomes the immediate recourse of your body because you've done it so often. That's what happens when our our faith is strengthened. When we grow in faith, it means that we become more and more dependent and more immediately and reflexively dependent upon God in everything. Whereas once we had to sort of work in our minds to, to, to remind ourselves of what it is that we believe and affirm, eventually it becomes just... This is what I do. This is what I believe. This is what I affirm. And there's no question about these certain things. It's because the furniture of the soul has been drawn closer and closer to the window to behold God. All other ways of acting, ways of responding, other natural inclinations like those which have recourse to the flesh and sensuality to the philosophies of men, that stuff dwindles down to nothing. It is put out of your sight so that you begin to rely more and more on God. Eventually, you you rarely ever reach into the floorboard to grab the shifter. You just always have that recourse to God. What do I know about God? What has God said? And then from that, you live. That's what it means. That's what happens when faith grows. So what are the ways by which our faith is strengthened? How do we have the faculties of the inner man? Inner man, that is the mind and the heart drawn toward God. How do we have the eye of the soul so full of God and all of his fullness that all other competing ways are effectively shut out? How do we do that? That's the question. This is the second shocking statement of the sermon. When I say this, you're going to say, I would have never guessed he said that. How do we increase our faith? Through the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. As I've said before, and I'll say it again, the application of the sermon is always read your Bible and pray. There's more to it than that, obviously. As I've said, faith is like a muscle. So if faith is going to be strengthened, it has to be used. It has to be strengthened to the task. That same muscle that was there at birth is strengthened more and more by regular use. To perform the tasks that are necessary for it. So when a man goes to lift an axe to chop some wood that was in his infancy, if it, if it leaned on him, it would have knocked him over. He couldn't, he couldn't move it at all. As an adult man, he goes to grab the axe. He doesn't say, okay, okay, I'm grabbing the axe, so I need to engage forearm muscles, engage tricep muscles, engage shoulders, engage torso to bend, engage fingers. He doesn't do that. He just reaches and grabs it. His his body, through constant use and exercise and development, knows exactly what to do because it's been strengthened for that task. The muscles strengthened over time by regular and increased use do their job naturally as directed by the head. So it is with faith. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit implanted at the moment of regeneration in seed form. If you're a Christian, you've got faith. There there are no Christians who are of no faith. You've got faith. And that same faith is strengthened over time by regular and constant use. And so we we should not think of the life of faith as one in which we have to sit down before a task and say, okay, engage faith. That's not what happens. Rather, as we grow... We go about the tasks of tasks of life, and faith will do its job. I'm going to use the word naturally. What I mean by that is instinctively or, or uh, reflexively, although we know it's supernatural. It is supernatural. Faith does its job. We don't flip the faith switch. It's always active. It's always going to be exerting its needed force for the task at hand. But just like a muscle, for that faith to do its necessary job quote, naturally or instinctively, it has to be strengthened to that task. For weightlifters, if they're going to a competition, they work themselves up to that moment when they put their strength to the test to see what is their maximum. But for us regular people, we don't do that. We simply go about the regular routines of life, knowing that through regular practice and use, we will be developed into regular, normal human adults. So that hands are eventually strong enough to reach out and grab a toy. Think about this. Toys that are only ounces. But an infant can't doesn't have the strength to grasp. But then eventually they do. They reach out and they, they grab it and they can hold it. The legs are eventually strong enough to hold up the upper body. Then other muscles begin to get strengthened and, and increase so that they can begin to balance. Then they begin to step. Then they have the strength to actually propel, to run, and to jump. But it's over time. You don't take your child to running classes or or jumping classes. You just know, as we go along, as they grow, as they eat, as they develop, they will get the strength for the task at hand, what's necessary for them. And if we met a a seven-year-old child that did not have the strength in his or her legs to stand and walk, we would say, there's something wrong. There's a developmental issue here that needs to be addressed. In the same way, faith is strengthened and grows by use. For all of the saints, even those who are to endure great trials of faith that they may not know of yet, but the Lord knows. I'm preparing them for a great trial. For all of the saints, the general rule of strengthening faith is is just like that growth of little boys and girls from infancy to adulthood. It is the regular, day-to-day, routine movements of the body which over time will strengthen them to the task. Or applied to faith, it's the regular, day-to-day, week-in and week-out movements of the soul in the use of the ordinary means of grace. We must never forget that faith is a grace, right? That's the short, short way of saying a gracious habit a disposition in the soul, worked in us, strengthened and sustained by the Holy Spirit. And I've said that faith has been called the chief of the graces. Remember when Peter lists a list of of things that we need to supplement, one with the other, one with the other, one with the other, to grow? What does he begin with? He begins with faith. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. He he just assumes faith. He's already said we have obtained a like faith with you. He's assuming we all have faith. And then from that faith, we begin to develop. He assumes that faith is the bedrock of them all, that it's the mother of the graces, that all of the other graces are to be exercised in faith. And any so-called grace that is exercised apart from faith, that's just moralism. That's just self-righteousness. Oh, I can be patient and also look into myself to find the strength for patience. You're a moralist. You're not looking outside of yourself. So faith is a gracious habit. And if it is a gracious habit, the chief and mother of all graces, how is it that we see graces increased, strengthened, and sustained? The answer is what we call the means of grace. We would call that the ordinary means of imparting, strengthening, and sustaining the gracious habits of the soul. Shorten it up. Means of grace. That's what we mean the regular day-in and day-out use of the very means given to give an increase to all of the graces beginning with faith. Now, the ordinary means of grace, I would put it in this way, the Word of God and prayer, the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And we could add into that the general fellowship of the saints, the things that we do at church when we get together to worship. And all of these really boil down to the Word of God. The central, the centerpiece, the lifeblood of every means of grace is the Word of God. Paul says in Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So if our faith is to grow, we must be saturating ourselves in the Word of God. You're shocked, right? You can't believe that I'm saying this. Are these words coming out of his mouth? We need, to, we need to be saturated in the Word of God. As we come to the means of grace, God's Word is made known. God's Word is proven. God's Word is illustrated over and over and over and over and over throughout our lifetime. That's what, that's what we need. That's what has to happen. Now, how does faith increase? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Think of faith like a the the cloth form of a pillow with no stuffing in it. And we have to get something to fill out the form of this faith. Things hoped for and things not seen give this faith a, a form and a structure. And that's what the Word of God does. The means of grace centering around the Word or revelation of God give greater substance and evidence to our faith. All of the things hoped for are in the Scriptures. All of the things not seen... We learn about them in the Scriptures. As we come to the regular means of grace, the purpose of them all is to constantly stuff our faith full of truths about God over and over and over. We never say, well, I know that. The men have been talking about the Incarnation on Saturday mornings for like four weeks. Oh, we're, we're past that. Of course we believe in the Incarnation. Read it again. Confess it again. Affirm it again. Learn it. There are going to be times when you begin to think in in the quietness of your mind. Really? God? In flesh? Conceived in the womb of a woman? I don't know. But when your faith has been strengthened over and over and over again, your response to that is, of course. That's what the Word of God says. Of course that's truth. Our faith is strengthened. It takes Firm and solid form. In other words, we're drawn closer and closer to that big bay window to see more and more of the details of who God is and what God's done for us, what He promises to do, why He does all that He does. All of God's self revelation is placarded before our eyes persistently throughout our lives. We, we don't arrive, we don't get beyond read your Bible and pray. Anybody who's tried to read their Bible and pray in the last seven days knows I'm not beyond this yet. We never get beyond that. As the sight of God fills the eye of the soul, when it comes time to act, whether it's in your thoughts, whether it's in your words, whether it's in your deeds, your actions will come out of a heart that have been, has been stuffed full and shaped by who God is. What God has said, what God requires, what God has promised, what God will do, why He does it, namely to the praise of His glorious grace, it acts instinctively as we imbibe the Word of God through the ordinary means of grace. So we could say at this point, application of the application, the proportion of your faith will be directly related to your use of the ordinary means of grace. Always. The proportion of your faith will be directly related to your use of the ordinary means of grace. Your relationship to the Word of God. Your relationship to prayer. Your relationship to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Your relationship to the fellowship with the people in this room. All of that is going to lead to the status of your faith, weak or strong. The opposite of that would be That failure or weakness in your faith, manifested by things like anxiety, stress, fear, worry, the inability to know how to act in in life circumstances, that's that's an evidence of weak faith. All of that, your failure, is going to be directly proportionate to your use of the ordinary means of grace. You say, I'm weak in the faith. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to ask, What's your relationship to the Word of God? What's your relationship to prayer? What happens in the sacraments in your mind? What happens when the church church gathers in your mind? What's happening? Now you might hear that and, and you're one of many saints who would say, listen, I read my Bible consistently. I make some attempt to pray consistently. I come to church. I do the things that we do at church. And yet I find myself still weak in faith. I have very little assurance of my salvation. I'm often very anxious about the things of the world. That's a reality for many saints. So that leads us to the second heading. Not only does our faith have to be strengthened through the ordinary means of grace, but secondly, we need to understand the importance of exercising faith on the proper object. I don't want you to hear me saying, Listen, trust in the means of grace. That's not faith. That's not Christian faith. The importance of exercising faith on the proper object. Faith itself saves no one. Faith is not a regenerating virtue or an atoning virtue. Lots of people have some kind of faith that's not doing anything for them. One's faith is only as useful as the object upon which it rests. It's the object, capital O, of our faith which carries all saving and sanctifying power. God, we must be fixed upon Him. So when we go about the means of grace, we have to be sure that our faith is fixed on Him in the means of grace. Just as faith itself saves no one, so also the means of grace in themselves strengthen no one's faith. They do nothing for us if they are not done in faith. It's only as the means of grace are used by faith. Yes, then we, what, what I'm saying is, faith must be exercised in order to see faith strengthened. It's like a muscle. So we go about the means of grace by faith, and as we do that, our faith is made stronger. So then what is the object of our faith? We've covered this already in a previous sermon. All that is revealed in Scripture, as it holds forth God in all of His glorious attributes, Christ in His manifold perfections, the Holy Spirit in His mighty operations, all of this finding its terminal point in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that's the object of our faith. And our use of the ordinary means of grace must always be done looking beyond the means to the God of grace. Again, the answer is always get closer to the window. Get closer to the window. Have your eyes filled with the truth about God in Christ. So as you read the Bible, ask, what does this teach me about God? Not, okay, how long have I read? What can I know about Him from this passage? Not, did I finish the chapter? What promises are here for God's people? What threatenings are here for God's enemies? Answer those questions in your mind. Then take all of those thoughts and bundle them up into a fixed, settled, personal confession of faith. Here's what I believe about my God from this passage of Scripture. Then take that truth and meditate upon it. If this is who the God of the Bible is, then this, then this, then this. You, you fill in the blanks. This week, uh, we, I did this with my children. Jesus said, Suffer the children to come unto me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. What does that teach me about God? That teaches me the God of heaven and earth says, don't you stop children from coming. You get out of the way and let them come. God of heaven, who, who melts mountains, who storms the oceans and then makes them calm, says, these little children, they get to come. That's my God. So then I take that truth. I have just learned something about God. And then I can ruminate on that truth. God. God. Is like that to children. If, if He's like that to children, then what about someone like me, one of His children? Someone like me, someone of a, of a childlike faith or even a childish and immature faith. He doesn't say, hold off until you've grown a little bit, then come. No, He says, come and grow on my lap. That's God. I've just learned something. About that, that seems so small. That seems like a little thing. But you do that every day of your life. You will grow in your knowledge of God. As you read specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's from prophecy or the Gospels or the Epistles, ask of the text, what can I learn about God through the person and work of Christ? What do I learn here about the Gospel? What's been done for me? What do I learn about my natural state apart from Christ? Where would I be if this were not true? Where would I be if Christ had not come? Just meditate upon that. Think about who you were. And then bundle all of that up into a personal confession of faith concerning Christ in God and meditate upon that truth. As you read about the work of the the gospel and sanctification and the, the operations of the Holy Spirit in applying these truths, ask, what does the Holy Spirit do? What's His job? What has He done for me? What does He do or what has He done to me? What should I expect Him to be doing? Right now, how does the Holy Spirit of God help my heart and my mind? And then you bundle all of that up into a little personal confession of faith about the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit blank. And then you meditate upon that. God the Holy Spirit is and does these things to me and for me. You must come daily to the Word of God, not as a duty, but as a beggar don't come to the Word of God and say, there, I've I've checked off that means of grace, and I feel exactly the same. That's not what we do. We come as beggars. As long as you're opening the Word of God simply because you're supposed to, simply because it's supposed to be a habit, simply because it's the right thing to do, see, you're still living according to a covenant of works principle. You're opening the Word of God to see God in the same way that Adam would have been peeking around a tree with a leaf over, his, over his, uh, as a loincloth. As the Lord God comes walking, fearful. Well, well, I, I know I should look and see this God, but, but what's He going to do to me if I don't finish the chapter? What's He going to do to me if I don't check off this means? We don't come like that. Don't ever come merely as a duty. Come as a beggar. And if you come and your mindset is, well, this is a duty, I have to do it, then you start there. Lord God set me free from living merely according to duty. Stir in my heart a desire. Help me to see that I am destitute. I am a beggar. I have nothing if you do not feed me today. You come to the Word of God like that woman who said, I'll settle for crumbs from your table if you'll just swipe them off. If you'll just give me crumbs, I'll take it, but I have to live off of something. So give it. If you're not coming to the Word of God daily then I don't know what to say. Besides, dear friend, God clearly cares about your soul more than you do. And if you would continuously, day after day, stiff arm that God, that heaven is probably no place you ever want to be. As we imbibe the Scriptures, we learn about God, we learn about ourselves, we learn about the world, we need to trace Trace what we are seeing in the Scriptures to some real, useful, needed application in our own lives and then speak to God about those things in prayer. That confession of faith, take that to God and worship Him. That that confession of, of what the Bible teaches you about yourself, take that to God and pray with regard to that. Prayer is a means of grace, but prayer must be prayed in faith. As we pray in faith, our faith will be strengthened. Not as we just throw up words. Prayer increases our faith as we pray, because you stop and think about it, here, here I am again. I've closed my eyes and I'm speaking to this God I cannot see because I know that He's there and I know that He hears me. That strengthens our faith. Prayer increases as we notice the peace that comes after we have brought our needs to Him. A lot of, I, I think that there are probably a lot of Christians, when, when you talk about the peace that passes all understanding and, and the peace that comes from prayer, they have no idea what you're talking about. Because they they don't really come to God to give Him things, stay there long enough to leave them at His feet and walk away. They've not experienced that. But when you walk through that, you get up and you say, I've left it. There's a peace that comes from that. Prayer also increases our faith as we see God answering our prayers. We bring something to Him. Then we see the outcome. He answered the prayer we have to be careful that when we pray for things, even what we might consider mundane things, someone is sick, somebody's in the hospital, someone is hurting, somebody has a need, and then we see it come through in the way that we prayed. Very often, our first recourse is that some unknown you know, guiding of providence really is what made this happen. Well, you know, people get sick and get better all the time. <laughs> Rather than saying, God answered my prayer. I prayed to Him and He answered that prayer and that strengthens our faith. John Owen says, experience is the food of all grace. In other words, as life goes on, and we come to the Word of God, and we seek God, and we meditate upon Christ, we seek the help of His Holy Spirit as we pray. after, After a while, life is literally just a series of of hours building into days, building into weeks and months and years of experiencing the real God through His Word and your faith becomes stronger and stronger. When you come to the sacraments, especially the Lord's Supper, because we take the Lord's Supper weekly, we have to engage in the serious mental work of fixing our thoughts on Christ. It's it's not just a a liturgy. Well, think about Jesus while somebody walks around. No, no. If, we, if we're not fixing our attention upon Him, it's, it's a waste of time. We, we're actually engaging in something that could be very deadly if we're not fixing ourselves upon Him. At, the, at a, a time of self-examination, as the elements are passed, remind yourself, where would I be if not for His body and His blood? But then also, remember where you've come. Here I am. I've been invited, invited to His very table. And I've not been given crumbs. I've been given His body and blood broken for me. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, Himself. Remember Christ. Remember Christ in, in all things, especially in the means of grace. Walter Marshall said, meditate believingly on Christ's saving benefits. What have I gotten? And your faith will grow. You have to bring it to mind. It's, it begins with... Bringing to mind all that the Scriptures have said about God and about Christ. As you come into the congregation for worship, come walk in the door as a beggar. Not somebody trying to get all the kids into the road, sit down and be quiet, we've got to do this. No, I, I come as a beggar. My kids, are, my, they're not in the road like they should be. I'm, I'm disheveled. I have needs. I'm here to receive from Christ. Find a brother or sister and talk to them. And while they're talking, maybe this is, maybe this is not... Uh, Maybe this is bad manners. But while they're talking, just think. This is a work of grace in front of me, speaking to me. Maybe you know their history, their their testimony. Maybe you know they're weak. They've had a bad week and you say to yourself, and yet here they are. God, in grace, has brought this brother back. (coughs) As your conversations go on and we, we spend time together, think in your heart, God gave me these people. For my good in providence from eternity He has worked to put these people in this room. Hopefully you get the point. The means of grace are meant to be used looking beyond them to learn of God. To have the mind and heart filled with the truth of who God is over and over and over. And this is important because if these things are not done in faith, then they're they're done to no good purpose. They're useless. And this is often why good people find themselves despondent and anxious even though they have the form of godliness in all these practices. They say, I go to church. I do this. I, do that, I pray. I read my Bible. I, a, I do all these things and yet I, I, I'm still anxious, despondent, despairing. They're, they're practicing like the Jews. It, said, it was said of them, their table has become a snare. The very thing God instituted was a snare in their faith. Why? Because they would not look beyond it. They wouldn't use it to look beyond it to who God is. They used it in the wrong way. So you must not settle to use or for using the ordinary means of grace in a rote fashion. I'm not saying it it, it shouldn't form a structure. I'm not saying don't set patterns. I have told pretty much everybody in here, I assume, I believe the best way is to fix a habit. Daily, the time and the place. I believe that's the best way, but not merely because of habit. Don't stop there. Never settle for the use of the ordinary means of grace without exercising faith. Throughout this entire series, I've had in the back of my mind, some of you have heard Sam Waldron's sermon on John Mark. And there was one point where he said, he he yelled, You must believe and that pierced me because that's it. That's what preachers do. They stand before the people and they say you must believe. You must. You must believe. If you don't believe, there's only hell. Believe. It says this. What's well, hard to believe? You must believe. That's what that's the point. It pierced me cuz I said yes, that's it. We must believe look beyond to the God of grace. And this will lead to using Faith outside of the means of grace in everyday life. Is it any wonder that someone who struggles to trace out from the scriptures, the very word of God, some glorious and soul stirring truth about God, is it any wonder that that person who won't do that, who can't do that, who won't follow through and look beyond the means to the God of the means, that that person also, can't walk through the grocery store without being worried and fearful and anxious and, and remembering how they ought to live as a Christian? You can't even find it from God's own word, and you think that when you get outside, you're going to live by faith? It's, it's a, it, you can't do it. It starts here. If you can't find the majesty of God displayed in His word, it's no wonder that you can't see God working in the world around you. What, what's happened? You've backed away from the window. And all of a sudden, your peripheral vision is being filled with these other ways of acting. Muscles don't just pop up when it's time to run. They're strengthened over time. And with faith, it doesn't just pop up and and stir the heart to look at God in a trial out of the blue. I never looked at God any other time. I never really think meditate, study. I never fix my thoughts on who God is and what Christ has done. I never do any of that. But I know that when the trial comes, He'll come through and He'll just, all of a sudden, I'll become this warrior of faith. That's not true. It has to be strengthened in the use of the ordinary means that God has given. And all of that funnels to us through God's Word. Knowing God and knowing truth from God's Word is what propels us to live the life of faith. When we close our Bibles, then we stand up and we get in the car to go about our day. Knowing God and knowing truth. Apart from knowing God and knowing God's Word, there can be no faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of Christ. Apart from that, there will be no life of faith. A lot of folks in our day want to do a lot of things except read and apply the Bible. If you talk to them, they can't explain what they believe. They can't explain what other people believe. They can't defend anything. All they can do is point to someone somewhere at some time who did something that they would love to do, but they don't have the fortitude to do because they don't have the conviction from the truth. So they just talk about what everybody else has done. The people that we read about who are strong in faith. They were rooted in the truth of God's word. When you know the truth of who God is, then you will live the life of faith. We know God through His Word. So in all things, especially the means of grace, fix faith on the proper object. You say, well, it it, it takes me a little bit to really get settled into reading in the Scriptures before my mind it really begins to work and and handle what's there. Then get up earlier. Figure out what it's going to take. Thirdly, approach the circumstances of life by faith. Having an ever increasing, always strengthening faith through the persistent use of the means of grace, always looking to the proper object of faith in those means, we will then learn how to approach every circumstance of life, no matter what happens, by faith. Our our eyes and our heart will be so full of God. Everything He said, everything that He is, all that He's done and has done, is, doing, will do, we're so full of that that when circumstances come, we live by faith. Acting in our lives, living by faith, becomes almost reflexive and immediate. Again, it's not that we say, engage the faith button. It's rather, what do I know of God? What has God said? What What have I been taught about who He is and what He's done? See, if this isn't true, even when we sin, when we, when we don't walk by faith, most of the time we know it because faith becomes so reflexive and instinctive that faith in the soul still says, oh, you ought to do this, and you choose a different way. It's not that it wasn't there, but you chose to put it aside. You, you give precedence to the flesh. It's there. It's instinctive. It pushes it's not a, fl- a switch that we flip or power that we engage. It's the disposition of the soul toward God and His ways, informed and taught by His Spirit using His Word. So then we must make it our practice to bring every circumstance of life, every matter, every topic, every idea to the bar of God's Word. One at a time. See, that's going to take a long time. That's all, this is all we got to do. This is all we got to do our whole lives, is bring things to the bar of God's Word and learn how to live. Bring it to God's Word. When our eyes are full of God, we we are closing off the outlets, the voices of the world and the flesh and the devil. You won't give credence to vain philosophies and empty deceit. You won't let your sensual appetites drive your decisions and your lifestyle. You learn, i got to bring these things to God's Word. i got to see what God has to say. Everyday issues have to be brought to the bar of God's Word. What does God's Word say about manhood and womanhood? What does God's Word say about husbands and wives? What does God's Word say about children and discipline and education? What does God's Word say about employment, vocation, and finances? What does God's Word say about the sins prevalent in our society? What does God's Word say about the role and function of the church in the society? What does God's Word say about our role and function as citizens in this nation? What does God's Word say about what I eat, what I drink, when I sleep, when I wake up? What does God's Word say about hobbies for myself and my children? Our children are growing up. We have to be very, very careful that in trying to give them hobbies, we're not putting idols in front of their eyes. Very careful. Stumbling blocks. It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the depth of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble, Christ said. We have to be very careful. What does God's Word say? We also bring abnormal issues to God's Word. Things that we might not really expect to encounter, but all of a sudden it's right in front of our face. So we jump into action. No. What does God's Word say? Everything, no matter how strange, no matter how extreme, must be gauged (laughs) by God's Word. God's Word must be used properly in these areas. As we study God's Word, we can't shift our rules of reading and interpretation simply because the issue is personal, difficult, or uncommon. God's Word says the people of God get together to worship. Let's just imagine a scenario where there's a a chest cold going around the entire world. And they say, all right, that's it. We we can't have church. We we can't get together for worship. Well, God's Word says we get together for worship. So do what you got to do. We have to obey God, Right? We don't change the rules. Well, all of a sudden... Well, this is a little different than... I don't think that God really had this in mind when He said this and this and this. We, we know pandemics are brand new. They've never been around the world until the 21st century, right? One author said, "Quote: Some interpreters do not search the scriptures so much for the meaning of the Holy Spirit as for praise and honor. Others, not so much for the sense of Scripture as for their own opinion and others not so much for the true meaning of Scripture as for the one that is useful or agreeable. We know this, right? If I want to know anything, I I can Google any question and find anybody who believes anything about any verse of Scripture. I can say, well, right there, there's a person who believes what I kind of already hoped that they would say. That kind of reading is not of faith. Faith comes and says, I'm dependent upon God. What does God have to say? If it uproots my life, if it flips my world upside down, if it trashes all my plans, so be it. Though He slay me, I will trust Him. I'm at His feet. Whatever He says. Bring these things to the bar of God's Word. Every issue of life, or in every issue of life, our labor as Christians, looking outside of ourselves to God, is to have our minds informed by God's Word, and our hearts effectually convinced by it, by God's Word. Stories and histories of past events are very emotionally and appealing, but they are not Scripture. Every act of, of, of valor is not God's Word saying, this is what I condone, I concede. We have to be careful. Bring it to the bar of God's Word. The church of Christ is a very gracious tool in this regard because it provides us with close personal counsel with which we can wrestle with the issues of life. God doesn't say when an issue arrives, go to the Google machine. He's given us His Word. He's given us a community of saints so we can seek the aid and the counsel of saints in this room, our church. Say, help me to understand this. Help me to wrestle with this. Would you pray with me on this? I'm struggling. And then... When you've done that, we must act in all circumstances according to what we've learned in God's Word. This is the life of faith. Harkens back to what we've seen already. Galatians 5.16 Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Romans 8.4 The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Having received life by the Spirit... We walk by the Spirit as the source and script of life. He gives the power and He illuminates the Word. We must rely on the Holy Spirit. You know the story of Spurgeon, every step up to the pulpit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. You must believe in the Holy Spirit. You must believe in the operations of the Spirit. That's why we went through it. You must believe you've been regenerated. You must believe you're a new creature. You must believe you're being sanctified. You must believe that by engaging in God's Word, He will sanctify you. Not you must see it right in the instant. Not I'm, you must get up and look in the mirror and behold that it's so. No, you believe. Walk by the Spirit. Then, perhaps even more practically, the application from our text in Romans 6 do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. See how simple that is? Don't give yourself to sinful things. Give yourself to God. That's That's so simple. You and I usually know where our temptations will be on any given day. Don't give any part of yourself to those temptations. None of yourself. Not your mind, not your hands, not your feet, not your body, not your time. Nothing to those things. Do not present your members to sin. You know as well as I do, the very things which cloud our hearts and minds and draw us away from God are things that for the most part we've already identified. We know where they are. We've seen their effects. We know them, and yet, here's what we do. We continue to either justify them. Well, I just have to do this. Or we pretend that we will have the strength this week to yield our members to these things, but they won't have the same soul-numbing effects as they had last week. I can do it this week. I didn't make it last week. Last week was terrible. But this week, I'll give myself to the same things, and I'll be more holy by doing it. That's insane. Do not do it. When the temptation arises, what did Jesus say? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Pray. Be on guard for the areas of sin and weakness. At the sight of the temptation, begin to pray. And do not under any circumstance yield yourself to that urge, that thing that draws you away from God. Don't do it. Anything that clouds your vision of God, obstructs your view of God, or moves your eyes from Him to something else is not of God. It's not of God. It's not a duty. It's not a requirement. It's not a concern of yours if it's drawing you away from God. Now we think about all the things that need to be done. If it blurs your vision of God, you're not yet mature enough in the faith to tackle that issue. Your chief concern should be strengthening your faith in the ordinary means of grace. Think of it like this. There's a house on fire, and there's an infant in that house that can't walk. Does anybody say that infant has the responsibility to do what it can to get up and walk out of that house, even though we know it's to no avail, and the whole time it's going to be huffing and puffing smoke in its lungs, but we ought, we ought to expect that that's, everybody knows that's what you do. No. No. We would say God gave that infant a mother that cares more about that infant's life than than her own. She will get that infant out. Marriage. Marriage is a great thing. Is anybody encouraging their six-year-old daughters to get married? No, you're not mature enough. Twelve-year-old boys need to get married? No, you're not mature enough. That's not for you yet. You keep strengthening, keep growing in the faith, and when the time comes, you'll be prepared. So also our Father in heaven knows our needs. Our needs. He will see each and every one of them met. And He will not hold us accountable or responsible to do or accomplish any task that He has not first strengthened us to accomplish. Now, a lot of times we don't want to admit, yeah, babe in the faith, I'm an infant. I'm not ready for that yet. We don't want to admit that. But sometimes that's the best thing we can do. I'm not ready. I need to focus here. I need to grow in my faith here. Until we are prepared and we can fix our eyes on Him and know that this duty of our eyes or of fixing our eyes upon God is the chief duty of life, well, then we, we, we stay there. And when we stay there, we can rest there. The chief duty of life is to fix your eyes upon God, to learn, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. We have to learn that because we have to be strengthened in the faith, always making sure that we exercise our faith on the proper object, and then we will apply faith in every area of life as providence opens the doors. I'll close with this. Argument from the, the greater to the lesser. If all of eternity is going to be spent in the beatific vision, that is the blessed vision of God, then surely we ought to understand that everything in this present life should be aimed at learning how to behold Him. So that when we die, the only change is that faith dissolves and we live forever by the sight of Him. If, if our, our conversation or our citizenship is truly in heaven, then that means we are the type of people who live on this earth by the rules of heaven. We live by the, the dictates of heaven. So then we prepare now to live like those whose citizenship is in heaven. Then one day the big bay window will be removed and the walls will collapse and there we will be in His presence with no competing loyalties, nothing to fill our eyes and our hearts but Him forever and ever and ever. And everything that we have endured in this life will be a distant memory. What, what will we keep in our, fixed in our minds for eternity? It's Him. It'll be Him. So let's pray that God would help us to grow in faith. As the elements are fixed, you know what to do. Christ's body and blood shed for us. Effectual for eternity. A sacrifice never needing repetition. <coughs> finished and complete in the heavens. To so consider where you would be apart from Christ, where you are now in Christ, and then we'll come to the table together.